On Open the Bible this week, we've been hearing a special presentation of Pastor Colin's book, Heaven, So Near, So Far. This dramatization of the book is the story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin has weaved together what we know from the Bible about the events of those days and views them through the eyes of Jesus' betrayer as he would have experienced them at the time and as he can understand them now. Judas followed Jesus and then later made a choice to lose everything. What does this mean for you? Let's hear more now from heaven, so near, so far. Welcome to Open the Bible. It's a special edition because we're about three quarters of the way through a dramatic audiobook. It's called Heaven So Near So Far. It's the story of Judas Iscariot. And if you've missed any of the previous days in the short series, I hope you'll go to our website and listen online. Go to openthebible.org. But Colin, we come to the point in the story where Judas is beginning to experience contrition. Yeah, that's right. He's betrayed the Lord Jesus. Uh, Our Lord has been arrested and taken off. You know, Matthew tells us in his gospel that when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. When he saw that Jesus was condemned, that implies to me that he was probably somewhere in the crowd watching the process of Jesus being judged and Jesus being brought out. And that's the point in the story we're going to follow today, how it was that Jesus was judged and how his condemnation came about and then how Judas had a change of mind. Well, let's get right to the story. Here's Tyler Weeks with Chapter 7. Chapter 7. Contrition. I had been picturing a scene of celebration in which with Jesus under arrest I would receive a hero's welcome in the palace of the high priest. The reality was very different. Left alone in the garden I settled down under some trees in the vain hope of getting some sleep. Over and over the events that had just transpired played out in my mind. There were still some hours to go before sunrise, but I knew that the priests would want to move quickly. I also knew that whatever judicial process the priests may have followed, they would, in the end, have to hand Jesus over to the Romans, since they alone had the authority to impose the death penalty. Since executions typically happened early in the morning, I figured that they would bring Jesus to the governor before sunrise. With these thoughts in my mind, I left the garden, made my way into the city, and headed for the home of Pontius Pilate. When I arrived, I saw the same priests, elders, and Pharisees I had led a few hours before. They were gathered outside Pilate's residence, and Pilate himself was standing at the gate with them. Though I stayed hidden behind the delegation, I managed to get close enough to hear what was being said. What accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate asked. I could tell he was irritated, which wasn't surprising given he had been awakened in the night. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you, said one of the priests. Pilate was a shrewd man, and he quickly realized that the priest's dispute with Jesus was most likely a religious one, belonging to their jurisdiction rather than his. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, Pilate said. That forced the priests to get to the point. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, they said. Realizing that they needed to bring a charge that would engage Pilate's interest, the priests advanced a new accusation. 
We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king, they said. Pilate looked skeptical. My guess was that he saw this as a local matter and he wasn't at all convinced that he should have been bothered in the night. After questioning Jesus in the presence of the priests, Pilate announced that he found no charge to bring against him. But the priests pressed their case more urgently. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place, they said. But Pilate was in no mood for being pushed around. Convening the chief priests together, he reviewed what had happened. You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, he said, and after examining him before you, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Then Pilate came up with a proposal that he thought would finally settle the issue. It had become a tradition that during the Passover, Pilate would release a prisoner chosen by popular demand. Since the choice was in the hands of the people, he brought out Barabbas, a prisoner whose violence was so notorious that nobody in their right mind would want him back on their streets. In a stroke of genius, he asked the crowd to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. I thought for a moment that Jesus would go free. Surely no one would request the release of Barabbas. But the chief priests and the elders moved quickly through the crowd, persuading the people to ask for Barabbas and call for the crucifixion of Jesus. By the time the governor repeated his question, the crowd was calling for Barabbas. Clearly taken by surprise, Pilate asked, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? At this, the whole crowd shouted as one, Let him be crucified! Pilate pressed the crowd. Why? What evil has he done? But this incited the crowd even more, and I could see the governor had the makings of a riot on his hands. He brought out a bowl of water and rather pretentiously washed his hands as an indication that he was having nothing further to do with the case. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. Pilate was ready to move on, but as a shrewd politician, he knew that merely absolving himself of responsibility would do nothing to appease the crowd. He also knew that the best resolution to this dispute would be one that had something in it for all sides. So, having pronounced Jesus innocent of any offense that would warrant death, he offered something to placate the anger of the priests. He would have Jesus flogged and then would release him. I chose not to watch the flogging, but waited near the governor's residence to see what would happen when it was done. Eventually, Pilate appeared. I am bringing him out to you, he said, that you may know I find no guilt in him. I froze with shock as Jesus was dragged out by two soldiers and paraded in front of the people. His face was so bloodied and bruised that he was barely recognizable. A mock crown made with branches from a thorn bush twisted together had been pressed into his head, and a faded purple robe had been draped over his body, lampooning the claim that he was a king. Behold the man, Pilate said with a dramatic sweep of his hand. 
It seemed clear to me that having already been pushed beyond what he thought was right and having Jesus flogged, Pilate would allow himself to be pushed no further and was determined to release Jesus. But the crowd became even stronger in its resolve. Someone stepped forward and shouted, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. The crowd roared in approval and called again for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate was getting nowhere. He faced a choice between appeasing the crowd and risking a full-scale riot. I waited to see his next move. Pilate sat down and pronounced the judgment that for the last few hours he had been trying to avoid. Jesus of Nazareth is sentenced to death by crucifixion. A wave of contrition overwhelmed me. I was seized with regret and I knew what I had to do. I must confess. I must take ownership for the wrong I have done. I must tell the priests that Pilate was right. Jesus had done nothing wrong and I have been involved in a great miscarriage of justice. What I had done could not be undone. My sin was irreversible and restitution was impossible. But I had to disassociate myself from what I had done. So as Jesus was led out of the city to the hill where the Romans executed their victims, I made my way back to the house of the high priest. As I walked, I felt the weight of the 30 pieces of silver in my tunic. The money felt filthy to me, and I was desperate to get rid of it. By the time I arrived at the temple, it was about the third hour after sunrise. By that time, Jesus would have arrived at the place of execution, and they would be nailing him to the cross. I tried to put that out of my mind and focus on the matter at hand. I had to find a priest. I needed to confess. I longed for absolution. Eventually, a small group of elders and priests came to the temple door. They seemed surprised to see me and did not invite me in. I have sinned, I said, by betraying innocent blood. Before I could continue my confession, one of the elders cut me off. What is that to us, he said. I was about to point out they were priests, that I was carrying an unbearable burden of guilt and that hearing confession was part of the work. But I could see that as far as they were concerned, our conversation was over. I was on my own. It dawned on me. These priests have nothing to offer me that will help me deal with my sins. They have blood on their own hands as well. I no longer wanted them or their money. Taking the bag from my tunic, I threw the silver I'd been paid into the temple. As the open bag landed, the coins scattered on the stone floor, and without any further word, I turned my back on them and walked away in disgust. Words that Jesus had spoken pounded through my mind as I made my way out of the city. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I was that man. I wished I had never been born. 
the Messiah I had always believed would be the light and hope of our people, but I had put out that light and now I was without hope. Having conspired with others in a crime for which restitution could not be made, I now carried a burden of guilt that no priest and no prayers could relieve. I remembered how Jesus had said to that paralyzed man lowered through the roof, Your sins are forgiven. At the time, I thought the miracle of his getting up to walk was the greater gift. But as I made my way from the temple, I would have given anything to hear the voice of Jesus say, Your sins are forgiven. But he was gone. And now, that seemed impossible. With the weight of my own folly pressing down on me, I made my way to a piece of property I had bought some time before with money taken from the common purse. It was a small field on the high ridge bordered by a cliff that dropped down to an open expanse below, and at the edge of the cliff there was a tree. Having fixed a rope to a branch of that tree, I looked up at the sun and realized it must have been about midday. And to my complete astonishment, everything was plunged into darkness. I had never seen anything like this before and feeling certain that this must be the judgment of God, I jumped from the ledge on which I was standing. The last thing I remember was the sound of the branch to which I had tied the rope breaking. I fell into the darkness and I feel that I have been falling ever since. Chapter 8 Reflection When I died, I left my body behind in the field. I am a spirit now, a spirit shivering in darkness. I often wish that I could sleep. Consciousness would be a welcome relief from this miserable existence, but sleep never comes. I am fully conscious and I am always wide awake. My mind never stops. Round and round I go, pondering my past life, loathing my present misery and knowing that none of this will ever end. I now understand what Jesus was referring to when he spoke about gnashing of teeth. My experience down here is one of perpetual discontent in which I find that I am always angry and never at peace, always frustrated and never satisfied. The only time there is laughter here is when we mock the new arrivals. The greater they were in the world, the more they suffer our scorn. When those who were once rich and famous show up, we say, now you are just like the rest of us. All your power and all of your money are gone and you have become weak, just like us. The great irony of my existence here is that though I cannot be happy in hell, I could not be happy in heaven either. Heaven is a holy place and all of the people there are holy. Jesus is the center of their life and their joy. Why those who could find no joy in him on earth would imagine that he would be a joy to them in heaven is quite beyond me. What I became on earth is what I am now. And though I live with unending regret over my sins against God, I have no desire to be reconciled to him. I see now why hell is forever.
After all of the time that has passed since I came here, I remain as I was when I arrived, resolute in my resistance to God despite knowing that this continuing battle leads to my ever-increasing loss. It may surprise you to know that I am more profoundly aware of Jesus down here than I ever was during the years I followed him on earth. I abandoned my faith because I wanted to be free from the demands of following Jesus, but now I find the knowledge of his reign and his rule is unavoidable. I took my life because I wanted to escape from what I had done, but now I feel the weight of it more than ever. So why did I miss out on heaven? You need to know first that it was not because I took my own life. This, of course, added both to my sins and to my misery. Taking my life was like betraying Jesus an irreversible sin. It was, and always is, the ultimate act of defiance against the God who gives life. It is also an ultimate act of folly. I took my life because I wanted to end my misery and escape the consequences of what I had done. But what I did only brought me into greater misery in this place where consequences cannot be escaped. Yet, sinful and foolish though it was, this sin against the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, was not in itself the reason I missed out on heaven. You also need to know that the reason I missed out on heaven was not that I betrayed Jesus. Although that was a wicked and evil deed for which I am duly punished, I was not the only one to betray him. The word betray means to violate a trust that was given. Ask yourself, honestly, have you ever violated a trust that was given to you? Of course you have. We are all, in some way, traitors to the trust we have been given. Then you need to know that I did not miss out on heaven because I was somehow destined for hell from the beginning. When Jesus said, one of you is a devil, he described what I became. I was not a devil when he chose me. Satan entered into me through a series of choices in which I opened a door to evil in my life. To understand my story, you need to grasp that I was not a victim and I was not a pawn. I knew exactly what I was doing. I picked my side and I made my choice. Time after time, Jesus reached out to me, but I refused to listen. There is only one person to blame for my being in hell, and his name is Judas Iscariot. So, why did I miss out on heaven? when for three years I followed and served Jesus? The answer is surprisingly simple. I gave up on Jesus. As long as you are with him, you have hope. But if you leave him, you lose everything. Believe me, I know. When I first met Jesus, I was drawn to him. When I prayed, I was sincere. When I preached, I believed what I was saying. But having started out as a disciple, I turned back and abandoned the faith I had once professed. Giving up on Jesus was my downfall. But that choice was the outcome of other choices and patterns that shaped the person I became. Of these, there are three that are always on my mind. First, 
Looking back on my life as a disciple, I can see that I was all about myself. I followed Jesus because I thought that attaching myself to him might give me a shot at making my mark in the world. Despite all I learned from Jesus, that never changed. And in the end, I abandoned Jesus for the same reason I had joined him, the love of self. My relationship with Jesus depended entirely on how what he was doing impacted me. When he gave me what I wanted, I was with him. But when following him became hard and costly, I moved on. Mixed motives of various sorts are woven together in all of our lives, but I was drawn to Jesus as a means to an end. Those who try to use him to fulfill their own agenda always sell out on him in the end. Second, I opened up my life to Satan without realizing the destructive power he would wield over my soul. This began when I first stole money from the bag. I knew it was wrong, but I suppressed my conscience and carried on. As time passed, I found that I was able to hear the teaching of Jesus and even engage in ministry without feeling that I had any sins to confess or any need of his grace. With this growing insensitivity to sin in my life, I became increasingly resistant to Jesus. When he spoke to me, I hardened my heart. And as I did, it was easier for me to shut out his voice until in the end, I became completely unresponsive to his love. Third, though I became contrite, I never pursued repentance. Yes, I went to the priests and made a full confession, telling them plainly that I had sinned. I was more sorry for betraying Jesus than I can ever put into words, but it was only the sorrow of regret. Repentance is more than being sorry for what you've done. At its heart, it involves looking to Jesus and finding forgiveness in Him. Regret leads a person to look inward and despair. Repentance leads a person to look upward and find hope. Attempting to use Jesus as a means to an end, opening my life to the power of Satan, and indulging regret without pursuing repentance were all signs that I would not end up in heaven. But if you ask me to tell you in a single phrase why I am in hell, I say again, it was because I gave up on Jesus. And here's why I say that. If, like the other disciples, I had remained a follower of Jesus, all of these other failings could have been forgiven. My selfish heart could have been changed. Satan's power in my life could have been broken, and instead of remaining in the misery of regret, I could have found in Jesus the gift of repentance. But my choices led me in a different direction. Looking back, on my years as a follower of Jesus, I have arrived at this firm conclusion. If you get close to him, one of two things will happen. Either you will become wholly his, or you will slingshot away from him and end up further from him than you would have been if you had never known him at all. It is no longer a surprise to me that among those who hate Jesus the most are many who once professed to trust him. Down here, 
I have seen some surprising cases of people who were raised in church, but then, like me, abandoned the faith they once professed. Now they are locked into an unending antagonism toward God. The claims of Jesus are so exclusive and his demands so pervasive that if you do not give yourself to him completely, you will, in the end, give him up altogether. There is no middle ground. Only those who have never known Jesus can remain indifferent to him. Once you get close, the only alternatives are to fully love him or to finally loathe him. And Colin, I think that begs the question, where are you? Yeah, and I really hope and pray that as you listen to this radio drama, that you will be among those who finally love the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever the questions that you have had as a follower of Jesus, whatever the difficulties that you may have had in your Christian walk, whatever the challenges you may face and whatever the cost may be, don't walk away from Jesus Christ. That cannot lead to anything good in this life, and it will not lead to anything good in the life that is to come. Don't walk away from Jesus. He is of supreme value, and following him is worth it, whatever the cost. Well, if you are wrestling through this, or maybe you know someone who is, you have a friend or a family member who's contemplating walking away, I want to encourage you to get a copy of the book or audiobook and pass that along to them or to have it on hand so that you can listen to it again. Come to our website. It's openthebible.org.uk. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time. For more information on Open the Bible and this special presentation of Heaven So Near, So Far, visit openthebible.org.uk And while you're at the website, I hope you'll browse the number of changes they've been making there, including making it simpler for you to show your support for the ministry. And when you do that, they're pleased to offer you a free copy of Pastor Colin's new book, Six Hours That Changed the World. Pastor Colin helps us consider the seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross, showing us what he did on the cross was a demonstration of his love for us. And you can receive a free copy when you go to the website and set up a regular donation of at least £5 a month. Learn more when you go to openthebible.org.uk. That's openthebible.org.uk. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But here's the problem. Many people who believe that Jesus died and rose do not feel that God loves them. So, what do you do then? Find out when you join Pastor Colin Smith for the next Open the Bible 